Hello everyone, I'm Jojo Platt here with the Runes Street Art to bring you another episode of Scraps. It's a pleasure, a privilege, and yes, it's even fun to bring you the stories of the people behind some of the biggest and most interesting breakthroughs in science and technology. It's a pleasure to have you join us again, or maybe even for the first time. And we hope that when you're done listening, that you'll share your comments, love us on social media, leave reviews on your favorite podcast platform, whatever it takes. In exchange for your love on social, we promise that we have something special in the works just for you. So stay tuned, shout your praise from the social media rooftops, and get ready for another Scraps adventure. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Scraps and on LinkedIn as Scraps. There are a few of us that work in neurotechnology that aren't active members of labs or commercial entities, yet still have unique and important roles in this field. Our guest today is one of those voices. In fact, it's his voice that has brought us the news of Neurotech for over 20 years. James Cavuto is the editor and publisher of Neurotech Reports. He hosts two annual conferences, Neurotech Leaders Forum held in San Francisco every fall, and the Bioelectronic Medicine Summit in New York each spring. Through his influential reporting on the field, Jim has seen it all. Today, he's going to share with us his origin story, the real skinny behind the development of the first laser, and drop some important names like Warren Grill, Tom Mortimer, Hunter Peckham, Ted Maiman, John Warnock, Scott Geske, Jen French, and Susan Schaefer. Finally, he'll tell us about his newest adventure in publishing. Full disclosure to you today, I do work with Jim on a number of fronts, which is exactly why we're bringing him on. I happen to know some of his backstory, and it's definitely worth sharing. One thing we hope to do in this episode is to highlight some of the more unique career paths available in neurotechnology. Jim and I are both proof positive that you don't need to work in a lab to make a meaningful contribution to this field. So we'll just dive right in. And um, I'm kind of curious. So you have a degree in biomedical engineering from Case Western Reserve University, but you didn't immediately go into biomedical engineering in some <laughs> capacity. You went into publishing. What what led you down that path from that degree? Oh, program? boy. Interesting, interesting question. Um, well, as you can tell by my gray hair, <laughs> I've been around for a while. And when I got my degree uh, back in the mm, 70s, uh, <laughs> the field was really new. So there weren't really a lot of jobs. Uh, in fact, there weren't any for, for biomedical engineers. But it was a boom time for engineering in general, and particularly for aerospace. Um, so I got a job right out of school with Hughes Aircraft Company, was looking for any kind of engineer. Uh, and as it turned out, they were looking for engineers who could write. And I was the editor of our college engineering magazine at Case. It was called the Engineering and Science Review, which kind of got me started uh, in publishing. So uh, because of that, even though I have a degree in engineering and I you know, was hired as a, an engineer, um, most of my career has been writing, editing, publishing. So I did that... Uh, um, for a couple of years, it was a it was a really interesting time to be 
uh, in, in, in aerospace. Uh, the company was uh, uh, a pioneer on a lot of technologies, including optics and lasers. And so I had a chance to, um, uh, because I worked on, but eventually worked on the uh, company's uh, corporate technology magazine, got a chance to really go anywhere in the company and talk to any researcher uh, and write up there what, what they were doing. Um, Hughes Aircraft was where the first laser was invented in 1960. I um, um, later got a chance to meet the inventor of the first laser, Dr. Ted Maiman. Oh, that's um, awesome. Inter- yeah. Interesting, fe- uh, interesting fellow. And uh, he passed away a few years ago uh, in, in Canada, but I actually helped him uh, write his autobiography. I think I told you about the book, uh, uh, Jojo, a great story about the, the race to build the first laser. Um, so, uh, but, but at any rate, um, I left Hughes to work in the laser industry and became the editor of a laser magazine. A lot was going on in, in lasers at the time, uh, including laser reprographics, which is a field I was really interested in. Um, so after being the editor of that magazine for uh, two, three years, uh, I decided it was time to go off on my own, start my own publication. And it was in the field of uh, um, electronic publishing or what we what would later be called desktop publishing. Um, we called it micro publishing because that's we were using microcomputers, uh, Apple's and, and, and PC, IBM PCs uh, to, uh, you know, produce actual typesetting and, and and it was kind of fun to be uh, in that field when apple was just really getting the very early days that. huh <laughs> early early days yeah, yeah early days so um did that it turned into uh, uh you know a small company we had about 25 people um about the time we were sold which was about 10 15 years later no 12 years later um when I sold the company, I had a non-compete for five years, couldn't do anything in graphics publishing, um, and uh, uh, I was ready to do something else anyway. So I went back to Cleveland and met with my old professors, Tom Mortimer and, and Hunter Peckham. Uh, I call it my Rip Van Winkle moment because I'd been, been out of the field for 20 years. Uh, and I said, what's, what's been happening in, in biomedical engineering and neural engineering? So what did you call said, them, wow. Jim? Sorry, I missed that. I called it my Rip Van Winkle moment <laughs> because tw- tw- I had been I had been gone for twenty years yeah. and I didn't know. Hey, w- w- what's been happening? And they filled me in. A lot had been happening. Um, IFES, uh, the International Functional Electrical Stimulation Society, uh, had been meeting in Cleveland, so I got a chance to go to that. Um, and uh, they, Hunter and Tom, introduced me to Warren Grill. I told this story at our conference a couple weeks ago, so. Uh, Jojo, you heard it, but but Warren Grill was a new assistant professor at the time, and uh, he became our first senior technical editor, helped us get the publication Neurotech Business Report off the ground, um, and helped us with our conferences, just helped bring me up to speed. Um, so yeah, it took a while, it took 20 years for me to get back into the field that I you know, had studied uh, as an undergraduate, and uh, what I was really passionate about, so so. Um, it all worked out, I guess. Things things fell in place. So you've very funnily or very delicately kind of slipped in a couple of interesting or what you called as interesting person for with for the, with a guy that you were working with who was the first one who who discovered the the laser uh, in 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 aeroplanes. And then you also 
slipped in your interactions with Tom Mortimer and Hunter Peckham, who many people will know that like probably the the grandfather of everything that we know about <laughs> neurotechnology and functional electrical stimulation right let's actually take the laser story first and tell us i mean why was your former colleague uh, that you wrote the book with why was he a very interesting person uh, to kind of be with and work with ted mayman was was a fascinating uh, figure and the story uh, that he tells in his book which is called The Laser Odyssey. I think it's just been republished. Um, Jojo, I think I sent you the link. It'd be a great, I think it'd be a great story, story for your podcast at some point. But, but um, back in the late 50s, there was a race going on. And the race was, who's going to be able to build the first laser? And IBM had major funding and MIT and Columbia. Um, and in 1958, uh, Charles Towns and Arthur Shallow uh, published a paper um, about the potassium vapor laser, and they got a patent for this. However, they never built the laser, <laughs> so the word vapor laser was, was quite apt in this case. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, many physicists, I'm not a physicist, but many physicists to this day say, well, they never built the laser because, in fact, it's theoretically impossible to build the laser. The patent never should have been granted. And in fact, uh, AT&T or Bell Labs, um, which you know owned the patent for the first laser for that first laser, never made a dime in royalties. And the reason is they knew they wouldn't be able to defend it if anyone ever challenged it. Uh, so the race was still on, and Ted Maiman was working with a hundred thousand dollars budget that he had at Hughes Research Labs in, in Malibu. Um, and he was using Ruby, which everyone said, can't lace. Well, Ted uh, show, showed that they were wrong. There was a miscalculation. Um, the problem was being able to pump enough optical energy into that crystal to make it lace. And so Ted tried uh, every flashbulb that he could find to try and, you know, um, uh, produce enough optical energy to to uh, to um, uh, to get to get that piece of crystal to laze. Couldn't do it, and then eventually he came. He tried one of uh, I think it was a GE or maybe it was a Sylvania light bulb that was helical in shape. Um, and he decided, I'm going to put the crystal inside the helix, and boom, he was able to get uh, a laser action in 1960. Well, anyway, I got to meet Ted um, later in the 80s, um, and um, there was a, always a controversy. Who invented the first laser? You know, well, Towns and Shell got the patent, but in fact, they never built the first laser. The first laser wasn't built till till 1960. So unfortunately, you know, uh, Dr. Maiman didn't win the Nobel Prize for the first laser. Um, many people, including myself, think he sh he 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 should have. Um, but uh, he was an iconoclast, uh, not just uh, uh, you know uh, an amazing scientist and a pioneering scientist, but but uh, had a really good uh, head for for uh, commercial applications. Later became a vice president of TRW, which was a big aerospace company. Uh, in, in Los Angeles, uh, and ad, an advisor to many companies, but also uh, was a was a scientist with a social conscience. Uh, and in fact, when um, 
this is dating myself, but, but when Ronald Reagan introduced this, the Star Wars system, the space-based laser, um, he was one of uh, many uh, physicists, prominent physicists. I thought you were going to go back to George Lucas. Uh, it's good that you said Ron Reagan, so... No, I was actually going after. I, <laughs> I was going after after uh, uh, Austin Powers and the laser. Laser. <laughs> yes, Austin Powers probably did more to uh, uh, publicize the laser. Uh, yeah, the interesting story is that Hughes almost didn't get the patent. A year nearly transpired uh, because they didn't understand Hughes Corporate didn't understand the. Uh, um, the value, you know, of what this was. He, Ted had to jump up and down to say, we need to file a patent. Um, you know, so back in those early days, they didn't understand what the value of the laser was. Well, the laser became important in my career because I got a chance in the 80s to meet uh, a guy from Canon in Japan who was had marketing the first low-cost laser printer. And I saw this and I said, wow, this is going to revolutionize publishing. Uh, and so I went to a conference in Miami called the Lasers and Graphics. And I met these two guys who had developed some software to control laser printers. And uh, they had written this language called PostScript. And they were from California. And they were really nice and said, hey, well, come on up and visit anytime. So I did. When I got back to Los Angeles, I called the company. Uh, and a guy answered the phone Adobe Systems, and I said, John Warnock, please, and he said, speaking. So this is how early it was. John Warnock was answering the phone for uh, for the company, but they invited me up, so I spent a whole day with John Warnock and Chuck Geschke, where they were just, um, I, I felt like I was back in school. They were writing stuff on the whiteboard, and I was taking notes, and, and so it was really fun to have been on the ground floor uh, uh, in the early days of the electronic publishing. This is this uh, is just industry. amazing, actually, because the fact that you were with the who's who of the whole industry, I, th I think it, it... Have you told anybody this story apart from your close circle of friends and colleagues that you know of? Just just Joe. Yeah, I call myself the, the Forrest Gump <laughs> I'm a of friend. technology. Uh, the Forrest Gump of technology, because I, I, I seem to be in the, the right place at the right time. That is and, awesome. That is just one awesome story. And, and, and electronic publishing and, and neurotechnology uh, is just becoming, uh, um, you know, uh, important and, and, and relevant. So, uh, yeah. It's I'm sort of self-aware, too. You're, you're, you created a publication about publishing about the actual tools of publishing it's it's a little circular there a little bit yes a little meta a little meta going on oh wait someone else is using that term can't use it okay <laughs> so jim you actually have a very interesting path right because one of the key things that we that we kind of try to explore um through the podcast is to show people that look science is more than just the data that you see on a piece of slide or, or a publication i think it's about the people it's about the connections and i think you just outlined the connections that you made by putting yourself well potentially out of out of necessity when you finished your your undergraduate degree um because there weren't that many jobs as you said in biomedical engineering at that point but over time, you basically went in and seized the opportunity and seized the moment to go into 
wherever your connections, wherever life took you. Um, and now that you have actually had a career in science communication or scientific communication or communication about the business of science, whatever you want to call it, how does it feel just looking back uh, at all of these various kind of points in history to see that you you were there and um yeah it, it uh, i don't think uh, do you appreciate that well, like i say it feels maybe a little like it felt to, to forest gump when, when he was there when when all uh, you know the what was it the the jogging <laughs> fad uh, became uh-huh. popular and 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 uh, all these things that were happening i don't know um i just kind of follow what i'm interested in and if it happens to be something that that becomes uh popular great um and uh if not well you know uh so be it but uh yeah i i think i've had fun um being able to write about a lot of different technologies from aerospace to to optics to uh you know computers uh, to uh, uh neurotechnology and now bio bioelectronic medicine um and uh, i guess i enjoy that being able to um you know convey scientific information to non-scientific people to business people to lay people and uh try and find you know the nuggets of what's meaningful that can be conveyed readily to uh uh to people who aren't phd's i think you just gave us an idea for the cover art for the episode which is you running in in the road in utah and and that, that's basically the cover art for the episode uh and and we know exactly <laughs> what we need to put out oh no <laughs> Oh, well, we're going to have fun with that one. Then all I can say is stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> don't get me started on Forrest Gump because I have I have a Well maybe a, maybe of- a better maybe a better quote is life is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> you never know what you'll get. Or so, or in a in a computer engineering lab life is like a box of leftover components. Well, okay. or Jim's biomedical engineering degree was his bubble gum shrimp, and then he basically chose to go after something else. <laughs> okay, so Jim, do you do you consider yourself an engineer who writes and is a publisher, or a writer and publisher with an engineering background? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, probably the latter. just because i've never really worked as an engineer i've been you know mostly a um been mostly a um communicator or involved in communications great so i think going back to the story about how you launched or launched the publication in in neurotechnology you said you'd gone back to cleveland and you kind of said because of the five years of non compete uh and uh an exclusivity to the previous employer that you were working with you couldn't work in that previous area so you kind of started in what was at that time a very nascent area right i mean even within within neurotechnology and and the way we know about it today uh there are a few people like mortimer and and hunter peckham were there in it for quite a few number of years at that time um but 
how did it feel and why did you beyond just the initial kind of background that you had and the people that you know what exactly did you see in the field uh that made you want to launch a publication in the space jim you know um what i saw was the possibility of helping people um and yet it wasn't being recognized so on that same trip to cleveland when i uh, met up again again my rip van winkle experience uh, with with tom and, and with hunter uh, uh, you know uh, and and some of the other professors i also had a chance to meet jennifer french now jennifer french was telling the story of how uh she had been able to use um she was the first woman to be implanted with a functional electrical stimulation system that was actually invented by by Hunter and Tom uh, at Case. And she was um, speaking at the IFES meeting. Uh, and I was just uh, I was just so moved by her story. It was a personal story, but it was also a technical story. Right? She she was interspersing, uh, you know, some of the the human experience of going being an active physically fit uh, a person to now being someone in a wheelchair and, and, and explaining what that process uh, uh, was like. She later uh, wrote about it in a book that we published called On My Feet Again, an excellent book um, that, again, tells her the personal story, but also tells the technology and tells the, about the role that a participant in a clinical trial can, can play to help guide uh, the evolution of a product. But it was frustrating because even though this technology had so much potential at the time, there just wasn't a lot of investment. Um, and, and what struck me, in fact, I think I even wrote this in the very first issue of uh, the publication, uh, is the disconnect. Um, you know, having just witnessed the dot com crash, right? And all of these VC firms that had spent, you know, millions and millions investing in these online pet food companies, you know, uh, I think I said in, in that first issue, you know, unlike uh, buyers of online dog food, uh, people with paralysis, they're not going to change their minds about the need for a, uh, a solution to, to their problems, about their desire to regain function. Um, and, and I was kind of uh, trying to egg on the investment community is, hey, let's let's look at something more meaningful. Let's look at something uh, longer that has longer term potential um, to invest in. And, and, and it took a while. It took a while for the VC community to recognize the potential uh, of neurotechnology. Uh, but eventually they did. So, so I guess I could, I guess I could say what motivated me was was the disconnect between where the money was going and where the money was needed. Um, and so my thought was, can we do something about this? Can we, can we, you know, do a publication that's not a scientific publication, but that's geared at, um, you know, tracking the commercial activity and and uh, helping to to you know build awareness uh, there and kind of play a, a marriage broker, if you will, between, uh, you know, the people with the money and the people who had the great ideas. <laughs> so that's a great, so you're, you're a marriage counselor and my kids call me a science pimp. So somewhere <laughs> we're getting it right. 
But you, What's you the touched word, on Yenta? something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that you, comes you in the Goldbergs. Them. Yentas comes in the Goldbergs. The comedy the series. Ah, you both don't uh, watch enough TV. That's the problem. We do. We do not. I don't watch enough TV. You're right. Well, and I have the feeling that that the Yiddish undertones of that go way, way, way further than the Goldberg. Possibly, but the only way that the, <laughs> the only way that a brown man can live, like me can relate to something like that is through the Goldbergs, right? So, I, which has where I have no connection to other things uh, that is happening oh. in, in the US. So I'm just saying about my ignorance, right? But more than anything else, but that's a way that it comes into common parlance right, at this Jim, point of time. Yeah. Jim, we're going to get a room down to LA and take him to Cantor's Deli. Oh, we'll get the full immersion going. That'll okay. be good. All right. But I do want to go back because, it, because we, you touched on something kind of time-wise and it's kind of the era where I started coming up professionally too, the dot-com era pre-boom, pre-bust, and then you launched Neurotech Reports in very unusual times. Mm. And I know you've told, I've heard the story before, but a lot of people haven't. And I think it's it's one that needs to be more widely shared um, about your the drop of your first issue of Neurotech Reports. Sure, sure. So that first, uh, that summer of 2001, which I called my, you know, Rip that wingle moment because uh, because I had been out of the field for twenty years. Um, um, we decided, wow, we're going to launch a publication, and uh, we did a lot of promo, got a lot of interest from the media, Business Week and Wall Street Journal, even the New York Times. They were all interested. Uh, yeah, we want to see your first issue. Send it to us when it's out. We we were preparing a market research report, and we had planned our first issue to be September two thousand one. And uh, the first week of uh, September, the issue was done. And um, now we dropped, I don't know, probably 100,000 pieces of, of direct mail, much of it to the financial community because we were trying to, to reach out to them, much of the financial community, of course, uh, in lower Manhattan. Um, and uh, then September 11th happened. And obviously, that uh, was a big downer. It was a big downer for the country, for the world. And and, and and also for you know for the industry because there really was no uh, no interest um, the media that that was really interested prior to to uh, September 11th had you know nobody really nobody wanted to talk to me it was just a, it, it was a depressing time and we very nearly you know gave up uh, in fact to this day Neurotech Business Report comes out at the end of the month we're, we're probably the only publication where our November issue will be out on November 30th, not on November 1st. Uh, and the reason is it harkens back to the, to, to, to 9-11 and, and September, 2001, when our first issue came out, um, we almost quit because it was just so depressing and, 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 and the impact on the industry. Uh, so it took me to the end of October, really, to say to get to, to say no, no, we're we're not going to give up. We're gonna we're gonna keep going. Uh, so the but what made you not came, give up then, Jim? You know, um, um, just maybe recollecting, you know, recovering from from the depression that a lot of people, a lot of Americans, a lot of New Yorkers were were feeling. Yeah. Um, you get over that. I mean, bad things happen. And you you were on the East uh, Coast at that time, 
and you're not no uh, i i grew up in new york state but i, I was living in los i was living in los angeles but but i was you know i felt like a new yorker cuz i had an apartment in yeah. manhattan <laughs> for many years yeah. you know while i was in the in yeah the it's natural industry. yeah and uh, it, 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 you know, it took me years before I could visit New York again. Uh, but 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 yeah. So just getting over, getting over that. Anyone who's you know lost a child or a, a partner, uh, you know, uh, certainly understands the, that that. And a lot of us were going through that. So so that was part of it. But also just recognizing that look, even if this isn't going to be the great financial success that I had hoped it would be. There's still a crying need for it. Uh, and I'm going to keep at it, even if that means I can't have the staff that I wanted. And, you know, I work can't really work out of the office that I had rented. I'll work out of the home and, um, you know, keep the costs down. And we did. We, kept, we did a good job of keeping our costs really, really low. And part of the reason is because I had had experience in desktop publishing <laughs> and I was able to do stuff on my own that normally you would hire, you know, uh, <clears throat> graphics and printing and publishing professionals. Um, no, I would do it all, including lick the stamps <laughs> and mail the newsletters. Um, you, you know, it's interesting. This became one of the one of the the big arguments that Jen and I would have later on when we were, you know, partners in in, in Neuro, Neurotech Reports. Is that, um, you know, she kind of ch would chide me at all the things that I would try to do uh, by myself rather than farm them uh, out. But it but but it stems from September two thousand one when when you know we decided no, we're just going to do what it takes to keep this thing going. Um, you know the first, the first Neurotech Leaders Forum, which was like a couple of weeks after nine eleven. We had twelve people come, and um, you know it was it, it was small, but there was enough um, there was enough positive feedback from from the twelve people who were in the room there to to kind of encourage me to to keep going. So those were all factors that made me say, yeah. We're going to keep at this. So, Mr. Cavuto Gump is also the pioneer of work from home when before anybody else did. <laughs> before there was a pandemic. <laughs> you know that's on. That's going to be on every name badge that you have from now on, Cavuto Gump. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So you that first meeting in 2020 because you have the meetings in addition to the newsletter, um, and I know you talked about the first meeting. And the and the twelve people, but you guys also had a pretty robust and uh, interesting discussion about defining the field. What is the mm -hmm. definition of the field? Yeah, and um, you know there were different views. Um, some people um, had the view that neurotechnology included anything, including drugs. And we didn't see it that way. And it wasn't so much that we wanted to keep pharmaceuticals out of uh, the industry. Uh, and in fact, you know, now with the launch of our new publication, <laughs> uh, Bioelectronic Business Report, we're really targeting that to the pharmaceutical industry. But at the time, 20 years ago, um, we saw what was happening in neurotechnology as different. Um, and different from what was going on with, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals, the CNS drugs, for instance, um, 
the people were different. The researchers were different. The funding sources were different. Um, the regulatory process was different. You know, the, uh, you're talking to CDRH instead of uh, CEDAR or whatever it is that, the, that they talked to in the drug field. Um, so we saw it as sufficiently different that no, no, we're going to really look at the intersection of, at the time, electronics uh, and the nervous system. Um, and we're going to look at applications of delivering electrical energy uh, to the nervous system and applications of receiving um, what we call neurosensing, uh, which of course now includes brain-computer interfaces um, and of course, since the time, it's not just electrical energy. It could be optical energy, magnetic energy. It could be, uh, you know, ultrasound. Uh, so there's other forms of stimulation that, that could take place. But we were interested in that, that junction, you know, what's happening at the, at the neural interface? What's happening? I was really, um, uh, I guess I was excited about that when I was taking Tom Mortimer's class 20 years prior, you know, we were just learning the Hodgkin-Huxley equations, which were really um, the Maxwell equations of neural engineering. Maxwell equations, you know, is the foundation of electricity, right? Or electromagnetism. And, and Hodgkin-Huxley basically told the story of, of how action potentials are formed and how electrical signaling takes place. And I was fascinated by that, even 20 years later when I wasn't in the field. Uh, in fact, in 1980, when I got the first, my first Apple II computer, one of the first things I did was, wow, it has graphics, as, as I was able to plot um, <clears throat> what's going on uh, using the Hodgkin-Huxley equations. Um, and and uh, um, boy, back at the time, Ion channels were just a theory, right? <laughs> Nobody really knew were there really ion channels, um, but it was a good theory, and it turned out, well, yeah, there's some good scientific uh, um, uh, foundation for the idea of ion channels. So, so yeah, I had modeled potassium and sodium and what else, uh, chloride ions, um, and you know, looking at uh, the flow of ions across a membrane. So I was really interested what happens at the neural interface, and so. Yeah. It's only in yeah, 79, I, I think, when the Nobel Prize was awarded for the first patch clamp uh, experiment to Nair and Sackman. Uh, so, yeah, really, really early days at the time. Yeah. I told you, I'm an old guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kabuto Gump, yes. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were just a kid probably at the time. JoJo wasn't even around probably. But, yes, but I was. I was absolutely. I was. I was already a mom. Jeez. You were a mom, and really in nineteen seventy nine. Oh no no no! Oh seventy nine. No, no. <laughs> I was still playing with Legos. So you Legos. got it the other way around, Jim. I did not exist in nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, everyone's um, younger than sorry. I am. Oops. Just because I look, I have gray hair. Seriously. Well, no, you have a you have a dark background on the screen. I'm looking at, so that's why I think. <laughs> Sorry about that, Arun. But um, you know, it's. I will it's, always, it's always hold it against you, Jim. I will always hold it against you. You should. You, you should. Can you give us an overview of of what Neurotech Reports focuses on? Um, how how people can find you? What they can expect in their subscription? Sure. So uh, Neurotech Reports is a market intelligence firm that 
that uh, covers the neurotechnology industry, and we have been for 20 years. Uh, we launched our flagship publication. It's a monthly newsletter called Neurotech Business Report. Uh, we launched that in September of 2001, and I've been publishing continuously on a monthly basis uh, since then. Uh, subscribers to uh, Neurotech Business Report uh, get print and uh, online versions of the publication, which provides uh, you know, some in-depth analysis of what's going on in the industry, not just news, but uh, expert uh, analysis and opinion on the directions of the technology and the market, um, new uh, you know, new players, competitive battlegrounds, market shares, uh, et cetera. Um, and you can find more about our publication at www.neurotechreports.com. That's neurotechreports with an S, dot com. Uh, in addition to the monthly newsletter, we also publish uh, market research reports uh, on an annual basis. They're updated and uh, uh, our initial report it's called the Market for Neurotechnology, where we look, uh, we do an overview of all of the segments of the neurotechnology industry. And in addition, we have uh, uh, published uh, some more in-depth um, market research reports on particular segments. So, for instance, uh, earlier this year, we published uh, a report titled The Market for uh, implanted uh, pain neuromodulation systems. And this is both spinal cord stimulation and peripheral nerve stimulation uh, systems. So there's some detailed analysis there uh, along with projections. Uh, we also published a report uh, called the Market for Bioelectronic Medicine, uh, where we're looking at uh, uh, some really some new applications uh, of neurotech where now we're stimulating um, um, we're applying neurostimulation to affect end organs and treat diseases and disorders that previously were exclusively the uh, domain of uh, pharmaceutical approaches. And can people commission reports from you? Is that something that you get involved with? Yeah, so um, in addition to the uh, regularly scheduled publications that we that we uh, publish. Uh, we also produce custom publications, um, whether that be a multi-client study or a, on a consulting basis where we will delve into uh, greater detail uh, of a particular market segment or an emerging market uh, segment. So uh, uh, yes, Neurotech Reports uh, provides uh, um, custom market intelligence for uh, vendors. Um, or other interested parties in the industry. Great. And the new venture, the bioelectric medicine report. What, wait, no, uh, what are we calling that? Bioelectric business report. <laughs> bioelectric <laughs> business report. Can you give us the lowdown on that? And, and... Yeah, so we just launched um, uh, last month a, a new publication, a monthly publication called the Bioelectrics uh, Business Report, uh, which is really the first industry newsletter devoted to the subject of bioelectronic medicine. And here what we're doing is covering in great detail with some sophisticated analysis uh, of uh, activities from the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry, and the medical device industry 
to develop uh, new therapies uh, for treating uh, systemic um, diseases and disorders, um, from a, uh, including a range of uh, indications from from inflammation to uh, cardiovascular disorders uh, to um, hypertension, to, uh, bowel and bladder disorders, diabetes, et cetera. And in other words, things that were primarily uh, exclusively in the domain of pharmaceutical uh, interventions. Um, so it's a, it's a new, uh, it's really a new development within health sciences. And in particular, we're interested in covering the convergence of pharmaceutical uh, and med tech uh, approaches to treating these disorders. So in a way, it's almost a campaign to bring the pharma world into the fold with our, our med tech devices and neurotech devices. And Absolutely. and I think yeah. I, IOTA was, was really one of the, probably the most notable success stories of an exit of a, a neurotech company that was acquired by a pharma company. Do you see a lot of activity in that area on the horizon, or is this a is this your long game? Yeah, um, funny you should mention IOTA and Astellas uh, because in an upcoming issue of Bioelectrics Business Report, uh, Susan Schaefer, our uh, consulting editor, who's helping us get the uh, publication off the ground, uh, she'll be uh, providing some um, some in-depth analysis of Astellas, not just uh, the deal they've done with. Uh, with IOTA, but some of the other areas that they're interested in. Of course, in previous issues, we've, we've looked at uh, GSK and Verily's uh, uh, involvement uh, in this space and uh, Merck's and some of the other companies. But yes, we absolutely expect other big pharmas and also uh, you know emerging biotech firms to partner with, uh, maybe uh, acquire uh, or license uh, technology coming uh, from the med tech space. So it's an interesting convergence that we expect to see more of in the months and years ahead. And is that also going to have a home at neurotechreports.com or should we be directing people in another URL? Yeah, for now, uh, you can find information about the new publication at www.neurotechreports.com and uh, from our homepage you can be directed to the Bioelectrics Business Report page and learn how to subscribe um, and get uh, get information on this new and emerging market. Awesome! And as a, as a member of of this venture, I'm I'm very excited to to be a part of it, and I wish us both continued <laughs> and and in, incredible success. And um, hopefully people out there, if they have um, areas of interest or stories of interest or things that they'd like us to explore, if they'd like to uh, maybe contribute a, an article, make sure that they get in touch with you. Yes. And I'll, you know, I'll just add, if it's not a conflict of interest here, to all of your listeners who uh, over the months uh, have become uh, big fans of uh, JoJo's uh, incredible insight on the industry uh, if you want to get even more detailed analysis of what's going on in bioelectronic medicine subscribe to the new publication bioelectric business report because uh, she's uh, she's a uh, key part of our launch team and will continue to be in the months ahead so thank you Jojo
I appreciate that. And I, I promise I won't be quite so glib in my writing as I am <laughs> on the podcast. Glib is good. Glib is good. No. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants glib in their market analysis. <laughs> Alrighty. All right. So it's really interesting, right? So I think you've actually seen the field when there was the first kind of spinal cord stimulation that was done, but the, even the deep brain stimulation area hadn't come through until kind of much later uh, in the mid eighties at the time or late eighties. Um. And a few examples of functional electrical stimulation was all done at the time. Um, and you kind of explained that as well. So how does it feel to you, having seen this transformation of the industry into what it is now, and not just the fact that it is the size of the industry, and I think 2020 was almost a record year in terms of the total number of investments. And this is just me just looking at all the news and everything, following everything that's happening in the field. I think 2020 was probably a record year in terms of investments that actually went it into was. the space. So how does it feel to actually see the expansion of the whole area of neurotechnology, neuromodulation, bioelectronic medicines, whatever we want to call it, into these new avenues of 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 treating multiple kind of disorders across multiple therapeutic areas and all the examples that you're seeing around you, Jim. Give yeah, us your I take. Mean, you give us your take of that. It's it's really good to see, you know, that it, it takes time, but eventually uh to see the investment community, um, to see um uh, payers, to see f uh funders. Um you know, there was a program um you're in the UK, uh, the Royal Society did a program a couple of years ago, and I was fortunate enough to have been invited to, to go to London, and, which, was, which was really fascinating to, to, to be in the same room as, as Isaac Newton. Uh, I mean, okay, he wasn't there at the time, but, but you know, it was... He it, wasn't it, there it was, in 1970? I'm old, okay, but... but <laughs> I was going to say, you're not that old, geez. A little, a little older. But uh, yeah, so the Royal Society did a great job of educating... Uh, they put out some, I don't know if you saw the publications that they did, um, um, but, but really good. And, and, and also, you know, um, put out a roadmap to, to see how they could build and grow the neurotech industry in the UK. I think, I think I wrote about this a couple of months ago, um, you know, in the U S the national science foundation and the NIH and DARPA and, and, and just all these, public organizations in addition to you know private nonprofits like the Reeve Foundation right in the early days there when when Christopher Reeve founded that they were looking for drugs that could cure paralysis right that was that was what he had hoped and and they didn't have any interest in in looking at neurotech devices uh, yeah interventions yep. and now guess what <laughs> the Reeve Foundation is all about uh, neurotechnology and I'm a, that's just a small example but but yeah so it took time but 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 yeah I've been pleased to see that that transformation both from public uh, and uh, uh, private funding sources um, uh, to see talented researchers you know like Warren Grill um, get the funding and and um, then the spin-offs uh, from the, that research you know um get funding from 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 investors that's been um 
rewarding to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, any kind of particular examples in the course of the journey from the last twenty years that you actually thought, "Oh, this is changing." Like this is changing in a way that I probably did not see it coming or it's changing the industry for better. Uh, were, were there any moments for you uh, in the last yeah, 20 years? Yeah, there, there were a few. And it's kind of interesting that you asked me that because I asked that essentially same question to Warren Grill when he gave the, the uh, keynote address at our 20th anniversary Neurotech Leaders Forum just a couple of weeks ago. And I asked him, hey, in the last 20 years, what did, what did you see both on the scientific side and on the commercial side that was most – and he answered that question pretty much the same way I would have answered it. Uh, on the scientific side, optogenetics clearly has uh, amazing potential. I wouldn't say that it's the only you know, thing. Um, but on the commercial side, the advent of closed-loop stimulation, which, of course, is now what everyone is talking about in pain and in, in a number of uh, – uh, uh, different areas, uh, the ability to merge neurosensing with neurostimulation um, to improve upon, enhance um, uh, the the therapy. And Neuropace was the first to do this with brain stimulation with their epilepsy device. And of course, now you've got Saluda Medical uh, and the spinal cord stimulation device using closed loop stimulation. Let's look for a biomarker that's indica- that's indicative of something relevant, and then use that biomarker to modify and and and, and optimize the the uh, stimulation that we're delivering. And of course, that can take many different forms. Right, the biomarker doesn't have to be a bloodborne biomarker. It could, could be an electric an EEG signal, but it doesn't even have to be that. It could be something that that you get off of a wrist. Uh, you know. Um, a lot of these companies developing wearables are going to mesh really well with neuromodulation therapies in a number of of companies. So, so anyway, not to steal from 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 Warren, but uh, um, definitely the advent of of uh, closed loop um, approaches to um, neuromodulation, uh, I think, have has you know, made sense to me. And, and, and you know, on, on the commercial side, some of the big mergers that took place early on, um, you know, Advanced Bionics and Boston Scientific, and then you had ANS and St. Jude Medical, which later became, um, you know, uh, uh, Abbott. But those deals brought a lot of um, credibility to the industry. So even though they weren't, big you know, scientific advances that really helped draw awareness um, to the fi- to the financial community. So those were significant um, those were significant milestones that we we would definitely put on the chart in the last 20 years. Yeah. Or, you've you've certainly I mean I've I've been around for in the neurotech field maybe half that time and a little over. You've been around you've been doing neurotech reports for 20 years and the Neurotech Leaders Forum for over 20 years. And you just launched a new publication. And so now I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell you tell us what inspired that and, and what you're hoping to accomplish with a new publication. 
Okay. Yeah, but first I have to correct you because it wasn't me who launched it. It was me and Susan Schaefer and uh, this other woman. What was her? Oh, Jojo Platt, uh, <laughs> who helped us. I don't know if you know her, but um, oh, who helped. But you know what? I have some stories about her. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sometimes. No. She's a horrible person to work with, Jim. In, in, in case you haven't met her, she's absolutely yes. horrible to work with. No, She's, no, no. Yeah. We've been we've been really um, blessed to have JoJo on the team first with the Neurotech uh, Business Report, um, and now with uh, uh, Bio. Because you know JoJo's been in in that space. I mean, her her years with the Feinstein Institute—that's where bioelectronic medicine, many people say, was born. Um, so she brings a lot of insight there. Susan Schaefer, uh, who's my partner in the new publication was the former editor of BioCentury, which is was the leading, not was, still is the leading uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, biotech industry uh, newsletter. And so she's bringing a lot of insight uh, about the pharma industry that we don't have. So what motivated us to get interested in this is, is recognizing the potential of bioelectronic medicine and again, you know, people like Kevin Tracy and, and Warren Grill and Victor Pikoff, uh, who, who, who are also helping us. Victor and, and Warren are um, uh, members of our editorial advisory board. Uh, and and uh, as is Sue Siegel, by the way. Uh, we, 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 so, so uh, at any rate, um, seeing the potential that bioelectronic medicine has for addressing Disorders that are not neurological for addressing non-CNS disorders. Um, you know, the potential there is enormous. And yet the organizations, the companies and the research labs that have the real expertise at what's going on at the cellular level or what's going on, you know, just understanding that disease pathology, uh, a lot of that exists within the pharmaceutical industry. And there's just not enough uh, involvement yet um, from the pharmaceutical industry. A lot of that early activity in bioelectronic medicine is coming from the device industry. And we saw that as a, um, you know, as a mismatch. We think there's a need to involve and educate, maybe not educate, that's that. That's probably not the best. But, but oh, why inform. not? Why not? I mean, having worked in the pharmaceutical industry and having been I'm at the only company. I'm not, smart, I'm not smart enough to educate anyone about anything, so I don't like to use that word. But but, but maybe inform, right, uh, the, the industry. Um, <laughs> inform uh, and engage, Jim. Let's let's leave it at that. <laughs> inform and engage uh, the, the, the pharma industry, the biotech industry. Uh, and, and uh, you know, again, if if we can, be Bianta to, to try and bring the device and the and the drug worlds together uh, to create this new form of therapies and this new form of, of diagnostics. Um, that's an offshoot, but we think a separate, at least for the moment, uh, a separate industry, uh, or at least a separate industry segment from what's going on with CNS disorders. So neuromodulation. Uh, to treat pain or to treat uh, epilepsy or to treat uh, uh, movement disorders that are essentially neurological uh, in their root uh, will continue to be the focus of Neurotech Business Report. Uh, but 
um, neuromodulation or neural signaling to treat uh, disorders um, outside of the, the CNS to, to treat uh, disorders affecting an end organ, cardiovascular disorders, hypertension, inflammation, um, bowel and bladder disorders. There's just a lot of opportunity there. And the pharma industry are the ones who know the disorder, who know the clinician community treating that disorder, and in many cases know the mechanism of action that's going on at the cellular level. This is just another way, and in many cases a better way, uh, or at least a complementary way, uh, of achieving that therapeutic effect where, you know, and let's face it, even the best drugs have side effects. Even the best drugs uh, have refractory populations. And uh, so um, it's in the pharmaceutical industry's interest to be looking for alternative ways to address the patient populations that they're you know, seeking to address today. So that's our goal, whether we uh, you know, achieve it or not, check back with me in 20 years. I'll be happy to uh, happy to let you know whether we succeeded or not. Well, well said, actually. Well said. Uh, and I think let, let, let's chat offline as well in terms of uh, just trying to see how I can help in, in other ways, so, because I would love to kind of be appreciate involved, that. because I think it's a very worthwhile endeavor and also something that I think having come from probably one of the first pharma companies uh, who have actually invested into the area and having led the discovery for the, for that company, I think there is a lot more that people can do in terms of informing and engaging that audience for sure. Um, so one final question from us, uh, Jim, because we're nearing the hour here, is uh, would you actually recommend your unconventional path in science to other younger people because i personally see that science has a place for everybody and it's not just necessarily doing science but also about doing other things like the way you're doing and i think it can be as rewarding may not be as straightforward uh from your experience uh but i mean i think this is also something that we personally see as one of the goals of of the podcast is to actually highlight these unconventional paths of people that that they take uh in life and in science. So w- what's your reflection on that? <laughs> um, I, I don't know that I would re- recommend my life or career path to anyone else because, uh, 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 frankly, uh, um, I think I've been lucky in a lot of respects to be in the right place at the right time. Um, however, I will, I will say this. Um, being able to, or not just able, but interested in communicating what you find um, to me is, is really important, whether you're going to be Bingo. in a lab as a scientist or whether you're going to be facing the public or whether you're going to be a business person or whether you're going to be an investor or whether you're just, you know, an observer. Um, being able to, to communicate or just, or just being willing and interested in, in, in communicating um, what you're finding, what you're seeing. Um, I think that's good. Uh, as far as a career path, like I say, mine just fell into place. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> recommend it to people. It, it's not just a career path. I, I, I think the reason, the motivation for me to ask it is not just a career path. It's basically about understanding the way in which people would communicate about science 
in a way that's different. So I think if if there is any, if anybody out there is possibly wanting to learn about that, and I think for me, that is the interesting part that people can take to act. I think maybe they should come and talk to you about maybe interning for a summer or something so they could, they could learn a few tricks from you uh, so that they can actually involve that in their kind of life and, and science and communication and, and everything else that comes with it because you've actually been one of the uh, few people or probably the only uh, person in the field to actually have had this degree of involvement uh, all the way from the very early days, uh, from not doing science and engineering to actually talking about it and getting people to talk about it. Uh, I think that's a great journey that you shared with us, Jim. Thank you so much. Yeah. So one other thing I'd like to add, uh, uh, Jojo, for people who are interested in uh, following the bioelectronic medicine industry, uh, we're, we're pleased to report that we will return to New York City on April 5th, 2022, for the fifth annual Bioelectronic Medicine Forum. And uh, of course, our last two uh, conferences, unfortunately, had to be held online um, because of the uh, pandemic. But we are uh, hopeful and, and, and fully expecting to return in person uh, to New York. And you can find uh, uh, more. We're in the process of putting the agenda together. Uh, but you can find more about uh, the conference and past uh, events, uh, again, at our website, uh, www.neurotechreports.com. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, thank, thank you for having me. Yeah. And thanks for including me in some of your capers. It's a lot of fun. We have a great time. <laughs> I think it's been fun, everything we've, uh, everything we've done together. So let's, uh, let's keep it that way. <laughs> great. Thanks, Jim. It's got to be fun. got to be fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. And we hope that when you're done listening, that you'll share your comments, love us on social media, leave reviews on your favorite podcast platform, whatever it takes. In exchange for your love on social, we promise that we have something special in the works just for you. So stay tuned, shout your praise from the social media rooftops, and get ready for another Scraps adventure. You can find us on Twitter, at Podcast Scraps and on LinkedIn as Scraps.